Hallelujah for the cross. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we stand in the shadow of your cross wondering how it is that you could love us so much that you would send your only begotten Son to die in our stead. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us here. Lord, as the Sabbath is coming and that you would just help us to truly rest in you and what you provided for us there. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus and his disciples are walking away from the Last Supper. Jesus has been trying to explain to his disciples his mission to the world. To some extent, he's been successful, but to a large extent, he hasn't been. His disciples still feel as if he will one day rise up and fight for an earthly kingdom, But what Jesus seeks to point out to them as they head towards the Mount of Olives is that they were about to embark on something much greater than that, a spiritual mission. And as they approach the Mount of Olives, Jesus sees a flourishing grapevine. He points to the grapevine and brings it to the attention of the disciples, and he says this, I am the true vine. Why would Jesus choose a vine to represent himself? Why not the graceful palm? Why not the tall and lofty cedar? Why not the strong oak tree? Jesus chooses the vine with its clinging tendrils to represent himself. The palm tree, the cedar, and the oak, they all stand alone. They require no support, but the vine entwines about the trellis and thus climbs heavenward. So Christ in his humanity was dependent upon divine power. I can of mine own self do nothing. You may remember him saying the Jews of that time also admired the vine. And you can read about that a little bit more in Psalms chapter 80 and Isaiah chapter 5. As a matter of fact, the Jews actually had a beautiful golden vine with golden clusters of grapes hanging off of it that would, um, was clinging to the front entrance of the temple, going around the pillars. It was a beautiful sight, and it was made by the best craftsmen that they had to offer. And this vine was not only beautiful, it represented something much bigger. It represented strength. The vine was a symbol of excellence, and it was also known for bearing fruit. And in the Bible, we see in many places that Israel is represented as a vine, a vine that was planted in the promised land. The thing is, though, that the Jews placed their salvation in the fact that they were a part of Israel or their nationality. But Jesus counters this way of thinking by saying, I am the vine. No longer was anyone to trust 
in their own earthly heritage or connections for salvation. They were instead to rely upon something else, and that was Jesus. To put it simply, also, I think one reason why Jesus chose the vine is because he wanted to kind of give us this idea of the type of connection and relationship he wanted to have with us. It's a very intimate intimate connection. Um, One where, you know, the vine is wrapping around and both need each other, but especially the vine branch needs the vine for life and for support. The life that we receive from the vine can only be preserved by continual communion, just like if the branch is cut off from the vine, it can no longer live. Without Jesus, we cannot overcome one sin or resist one temptation. And as the vine branch continues to consistently draw sap from the living vine, we also must receive faith from him by faith. We must receive from him by faith, excuse me, the strength and the perfection of his own character. The sinner unites his weakness to Christ's strength, just as the vine branch is united to the vine. The sinner unites his emptiness to Christ's fullness, his frailty to Christ's enduring might. It is then that he has the mind of Christ. During my sophomore year of high school, uh, I was lucky enough to go on a really cool music trip. Uh, We actually ended up going to Ireland, and we were singing there. And I remember um, I decided to run one morning, you know, get some exercise in to keep my immune system up, uh, you know, since we were traveling. And so I decided to go on a run, and one of my my friend's dad came along with me. His name was Mr. Slater. And so we're running through the green hills of Ireland. And I don't know if you guys know anything about the climate there, but it's an oceanic climate, which means basically in the winter, nothing freezes. It's just kind of cool and misty and rainy. And then in the summer, it's warmer. And this allows for just vegetation to just flourish. It's green everywhere. The trees are so green. The hills are so green. No brown splotches of grass anywhere. It's just pure green through and through. Something that also captivated me was the amount of vines that would grow on the trees and on the fences. Something about the fences actually is you don't really see a lot of like chain link fences there or even wooden fences. It's like stones stacked on each other. It's really cool. Uh, Very like old fashioned. Um, And also in Ireland, there's so many castles um, that uh, not all of them can be repurposed for tourist, you know, I guess, you know, money-making tourist, you know, traps. So sometimes you can just be going through the woods. In Ireland, you can come across a beautiful castle with vines hanging off of it that was abandoned centuries ago. And I remember we came to this field, and there was it was just, it was beautiful as green, like I've been saying, but it also had like a bunch of animals, and it. it had some some llamas, and it had some, um, uh, it had, uh, some sheep and some goats. And so we were standing there, and I started to sing a song, because we were on a music trip, and I started to sing a song to these animals, and they all started to come and gather around, and they formed kind of this half circle in front of us, and then they started singing back in their own language. And it was a really cool experience. But something I really remember about Ireland was the vines, just beautiful vines hanging off of everything. Let us continue on to 
let us come back to our journey, um, the journey that Jesus and his disciples were taking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is walking with his disciples when he becomes strangely silent. All his life, he had stood strong like a rock, and he was constantly leaning on God's promises, looking for lessons in nature, constantly communing with his Father. But now, as he approaches the Garden of Gethsemane, he feels as if he is about to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence forever. Now he was numbered with the transgressors, the guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to Jesus. So great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. The thing which he treasured most, especially during his earthly experience here, you know, always relying upon that love, the love and the presence of his father. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. The sense of God's wrath against sin was physically crushing out his life, physically and mentally crushing out his life. And Satan was working harder than ever, and we can understand why this would be. If Satan could win in these final moments, the world would be his and all of its subjects, including us here in this room. We would be forever under Satan's power. We can see how Satan must have tempted Jesus to believe that by taking on the sins of the entire world, he would effectively separate himself from his father forever, using the, one of the things that Jesus feared most to tempt Jesus in these final moments. Imagine the compelling evidence that Satan could bring before Jesus as he climbs the mountain. The religious leaders of your time have rejected what you preach, and they persecute you continually. One of your own disciples, who you have eaten meals with, who has listened to your words, will sell you out and betray you for 30 pieces of silver? Your zealous follower, Peter, will deny you not once, not twice, but three times. All will forsake you. All of your disciples will flee. The very people that Jesus loved would nail him to a cross. The very people who he came to save would look to murder him. And from Jesus' pale, trembling lips came the bitter cry, Oh, my Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Yet even now he adds, nevertheless not, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The human heart longs for sympathy, and Christ took on humanity. He also longed for sympathy in these trying moments. He felt it to the very depths of his being. If only he could know that his disciples had his back. If only 
he could receive some encouraging words from them, he would be strengthened. But when the Savior was most in need of sympathy and of prayer, the disciples were found asleep. Even the zealous Peter was sleeping, and he addresses them and says, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch for an hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And here, even in this moment, we see that Jesus is trying to give his disciples the benefit of the doubt. Here, even now, he is trying to excuse their weakness. The spirit is ready, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, who at this point is suffering and weary from the anguish that he's experiencing and the weight of the sins of the world and that realization, he staggers back to his place of prayer and with anguish and sorrow weighing on him, he cries out, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He walks over to his disciples once again, only to find them sleeping a second time. When they awoke, I believe it is not too far-fetched to say that they could hardly recognize him. For as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 52 verse 14, his visage or his face was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus was experiencing grief to the level where it was changing his physical appearance. Turning away, Jesus saw again his retreat, or he went back to the place that he was praying, and for a third time he fell flat to the ground with his face downward in the dirt. He was overcome by the horror of a great darkness. He prayed for his own tempted soul. Many a times he was tempted by Satan to allow humanity to face condemnation on their own. This awful moment had come for Jesus, this moment where he was tempted, the moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup that man was supposed to drink. It was not too late for Jesus to back out he might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity, even yet. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin. I will go back to my father. Will the son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? But love could not turn away. Jesus could not turn away. And again, the words fall from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my father, if this cup not pass, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Jesus prayed this prayer three times and three times his humanity shrunk from taking on the weight of our sins. But Jesus thinks of us. 
He thinks of the transgressors of God's law. He thinks of all the men and women who have gone to the grave under the curse of sin before him. He thinks of the men, women, and children who, if left to themselves, will perish. And he thinks of you and I here in the future. He hears the cries and the lamentations of a doomed and sick world, and a decision is made. Jesus decides that he will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood, and through his perishing, millions will gain access to eternal life. Sometimes it's hard for us to picture what Jesus was leaving behind. The courts of heaven, filled with purity and happiness and glory. And he did all this to save the one lost sheep, which is our world. Our world that has fallen by transgression of God's law. Jesus decided that he would not turn his back on his mission. He will become the sacrifice of a race that has chosen to sin and turn their back on God. Jesus arose from his place of prayer. His agony had not left him. The weight of those sins had not left him. But he came forth calm and ready to bear the sins of humanity. And what do you guys think the disciples were doing at the end of all this? They were sleeping. Jesus says to them, no, go ahead and take your rest. For the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. But it was not long, it was not much more time that the disciples got to sleep because the mob was already upon them. The mob was already coming up the mountain. With peace and strength, Jesus presented himself to that mob. When they requested a Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he. When he said that I am he, or when he responded to their question, where is Jesus of Nazareth? A divine light shined out from him so that those who came to collect him fell to the ground as dead men. In this moment, could not have Jesus escaped with his disciples? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind also that angels were there and they strongly desired that Jesus would call on them to come to his aid. They desired to fight for their master in that moment, I'm sure. But soon the light faded and Jesus was still there. He stood firm. The mob rose from the ground and took him away. Jesus was taken to Ananias, then Caiaphas, and then Pilate. From Pilate, he was sent to Herod, and then back to Pilate again. He had neither food nor drink since eating supper with his disciples. He was exhausted from agonizing over what was before him at Calvary. He had endured the anguish of betrayal and he had stood by as his disciples forsook him and fled. 
He was twice tortured by the scourge so that his back was but ragged furrows of flesh and blood. Yet through all of this, Christ did not fail. Every word that he spoke served only to glorify God. When the cross was finally laid upon his bloody back, he could not bear the weight. The crowd that followed the Savior showed no compassion, even though many of them had seen him heal the sick and the lame and the diseased. Many of them, in fact, in that crowd that were jeering at him, were waving palm branches as he rode triumphantly through Jerusalem just six days before. They taunted and reviled him because he could not carry the heavy cross. There were, however, some people there, some women there, who were mourning and wailing at the thought of Jesus being unjustly sentenced to the cross. Even in his intense pain and agony, Jesus was not indifferent to their expressions of grief, and he felt a deep sympathy towards them. Imagine that. Someone that thinks of others to the extent where they are being taken to Calvary to be crucified on a cross, but they take time to sympathize with those who are suffering. Incredible. Eventually, the party reached Calvary, where Jesus was destined to be crucified between two thieves. Jesus' mother looked on and asked, and, you know, mothers here, you can imagine the thoughts that would be going through Jesus' mother's, you know, mind. Questions like, would he give his life really now at the cross? Would he give his life to be crucified I thought that my son was meant for something more than this. Would the son of God, I was told that he is the son of God, be so cruelly slain? Must she give up her faith that Jesus was the Messiah? The thing that she had hoped for? She had watched this this baby turn into a boy, turn into a young man, and now, instead of redeeming Israel, he was to be crucified. She saw his hands stretched upon the cross. And I'm sure that she thought or she hoped and she prayed that at any moment something would happen. But no, the hammer and the nails, they were brought and the spikes were driven into the tender flesh of Jesus. The heart-stricken disciples who had been following at a distance bore away or took away Jesus' mother so that she did not have to bear the terrible sight. While the soldiers did their worst, Jesus prayed for them, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prays in the midst of this pain and agony, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The soldiers were torturing the one who had come to save this sinful race from eternal ruin, if they had known, surely they would have stopped. They were torturing the one who had given them every breath that they had breathed. They were torturing and putting nails into the person that had provided every meal that they had ever eaten. They were torturing the one 
who knit them in their mother's womb. As we see in Psalms 139, Jesus spoke only to them in love and pity. And in the book Desire of Ages, it says this about his prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced not those soldiers only, but the whole world. It took in every sinner that had ever lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God, not just those soldiers, but us as well. And to all, forgiveness is freely offered, just as Jesus offered forgiveness to those soldiers that were doing that to him there that day. Whosoever will accept it may have his peace with God and inherit eternal life. The enemies of Jesus throughout this entire experience were venting their rage upon him as he hung upon the cross, priests, rulers, and the scribes joined in with the mob in a satanic frenzy, mocking the dying naked Savior. Many of you may remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, and the heavens opened up, and, Jesus, and God said to Jesus, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. No doubt that was encouraging to Jesus as he began his ministry, knowing that God was with him. But there was no such voice now. If ever there was a time, it seems that it would be now. But there was no such voice bringing Jesus comfort, assuring him that what he was doing was the right thing to do. There was no voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The voice from heaven was silent. No testimony in Christ's favor from heaven or from the people below was heard. Alone, completely alone, he suffered abuse and mockery from wicked men. The voices from the crowd mocked him and said, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Does this sound familiar? Right after Christ's baptism, he was brought into the wilderness. And after that time of fasting, Satan came to him to tempt him. And Satan proposed these same similar questions to him. The big if. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made to bread. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down to these stones. Surely the angels will bear you up. And so the people say to him there on the cross, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And even the two thieves on his left and his right mock him. One thief says and echoes the the things that the people below are saying, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. But he adds on something else, save us as well. Little does he know that by Jesus staying there on that cross, he is giving everyone, the whole world, objectively the opportunity to be eternally saved. So for Jesus to 
fulfill this man's request would in the end only be saving his earthly life, not the eternal, not the eternal life. But then there's something happening on the other side of Jesus. The other thief. While at first he may have joined in the ridiculing of the Messiah, he now starts to put together the pieces of the puzzle. He sees Jesus on the cross. He understands the type of man that Jesus is. And he understands the type of man that he is. He understands the type of man that his comrade is. And as he's drawing these comparisons, he thinks of Pilate's words. I could find no fault in him. This man, this thief, was familiar with the work of Jesus and while not closely or directly associated with him throughout his earthly ministry, he knew of what Jesus was doing, going around, healing the sick, lifting up the oppressed. And slowly, those pieces start to come together in his mind, and he looks upon Jesus as he truly is. In Jesus, the thief sees the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he cries, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And quickly, immediately, the answer comes from Jesus, who is being crucified, soft and melodious, the tone of his voice, full of love and compassion for this dying thief, this dying criminal. Truly, I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. For long hours of agony, mockery had fallen upon the ears of Jesus. As he hangs upon the cross there, he hears the jeers and the curses. With a longing heart, he has listened for some expression of faith from his disciples. He has heard only the mournful words, We trusted that it had been he who would have redeemed Israel. How grateful then must Jesus have been How grateful Jesus must have been to hear these words from the thief on the cross. How grateful was this utterance, how grateful he was of this utterance of faith and love from the dying thief. While the leading Jews denied him and even the disciples doubted his divinity, this thief calls him Lord. Many were ready to call Jesus Lord when he worked miracles. After he had risen from the grave, many were willing to call him Lord, but none acknowledged him as he hung dying upon the cross, save that one thief who was saved at the 11th hour. So beautiful. As Jesus hung there upon the cross dying, it was not the fear of death that weighed on him, but instead... It was the fear of what sin could do to the human race. He saw how deep is the hold of sin on the human heart. He knew that without divine help, many would perish. All of us would perish. And so the transgressions and the iniquities of us all were laid upon him. All his life, Christ had been publishing and preaching the good news of his father. My father loves mercy. 
My Father has pardoning love. Salvation for all sinners was his theme. But now, while he was on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was Jesus's agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Friends, these are the things that broke the heart of Jesus. It is our sins that nailed him to that cross. And the rest of the universe could hardly look on. The sun was darkened and blotted out. It was like midnight in the middle of the day. The angels could not look upon this awful sight. Their beloved Jesus, tortured, bruised, battered, nailed to a cross. Lightning flash and clouds rumbled as their creator died naked and forsaken of God on a crude wooden cross. The spotless son of God hung upon the cross, his flesh lacerated with stripes. The hands that had so often reached out to provide blessing to those around him were nailed to wooden bars. The feet that had so tirelessly traveled around the countryside, offering his ministry of love and healing, were spiked to the tree. The royal head was pierced with not a glorious crown filled with gems and precious stones, but a crown of thorns. His quivering lips that had done so much to comfort the sick, the oppressed, to lift up the downtrodden, were parched and dry. And finally, the words were spoken. It is finished. And with these words, it was declared that a way had been made for sinners, such as you and I. For Christ on the cross had obtained, had obtained eternal redemption for us all. By a tree through Adam, all the human race was steeped into sin. But by a tree through Jesus, the human race was eternally redeemed. Today, I would like to ask how many of you are willing to contemplate this precious story more often and to commit to sharing with those around you. If you'd like to commit to that, please say amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now, so thankful for the sacrifice that you have offered. Lord, you've, you've, paid, you've paid the price. There is nothing left that we can give besides our hearts to you. Lord, we accept this free gift this free gift of pardon that we do not deserve. I pray, Lord, that just as a thief on the cross, that we would look to you as the Lamb of God that came to save us from the foundation of the world. From the very beginning, you saw something in us. You saw something precious in us that you wanted to preserve. And so we, we thank you, Lord, for that. And we ask that as we go throughout this resurrection 
weekend, as we go throughout this Easter weekend, Lord, that we would contemplate on these heavenly divine themes. Thank you so much for your love, for your sacrifice for us. In your name we pray, amen.